And we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20. The Gospel of Luke chapter 20. And we want to work on a question tonight. And that question is fairly easy, and that's the question, should I pay taxes? The <laughs> uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 20. And let's dig into this. Verse number 19. And the chief priests and the scribes in the same hour sought to lay hands on him. They feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They watched him and sent those spies which should feign or pretend themselves just then. Someone turned their phone off. I hear a telephone. <laughs> that they might take hold of his words so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. They asked him, saying, Master, we know that you say us and teach us rightly, neither accept as you the person of any, but teach us the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, Thank you for one more occasion. We can dig into the scriptures, speak to all of our hearts this evening, give us insight, wisdom, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Very interesting chapter. You can see in verse 1, Jesus was in the temple preaching the gospel and teaching the people, and there were priests and scribes and elders there. Their question for him was, who gave you this authority that you're operating in? So he said, let me ask you a question. And when he spoke of John the Baptist, saying, was he of man or from God, they couldn't answer. So the Lord said, well, I'm not going to tell you whether or not I've got this authority and who it comes from. Well, then, in respect to authority, he gives a parable describing a man that owns a vineyard and says that, Man had basically lent it out to different people, but it was time to reap the rewards from the harvest. So he sent some servants, and these people beat the servants, one after another. Finally, he said, I'll send my son. They'll at least reverence my son or honor my son because he's a representative of me. So when the son got there, of course, they beat him and uh, took his life. So... In the end, Jesus basically let them know that what they had done was essentially like bothering the court. Doing so, they're having to deal with him. And they realized that Jesus has spoke that parable about them, as you can see in verse 19. But notice again how the priests and the scribes come together. Now, the people who ordinarily wouldn't get along, they'll get along if they have one common enemy. So the, the priests, their ministry was in the temple, typically Sadducees. The scribes were of the more conservative sort, believing in the scriptures, connected with the Pharisees, 
And then, as I mentioned, the Herodians, who are not mentioned in this particular text, but they wanted to kill him. And this is not the first time people wanted to put their hands on Jesus to hurt him. You can read it also in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 30. But why did they want to hurt Jesus? Because of what he preached, how he lived, what he did. He did things they could not do. He certainly did things they weren't in favor of. And that makes people jealous. Now, you, you really have to be angry with someone to want to put your hands on them. You ever been that angry before? Maybe one or two of you have been that angry before you wanted to lay hands suddenly on, on someone. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe one of your kids. Maybe a neighbor made you mad or, or something like that. This is what happened here. But the problem was they couldn't do it because of the people. And you see that several times in the gospel. Where people wanted to hurt Jesus, but they knew the people loved him. The masses of people loved him. We forget that sometimes when we follow Jesus all the way to the cross, because the closer he got to Calvary, the crowd seemed to thin out a little bit. But all across the country, there were a lot of people who believed in Jesus and loved him. Just they weren't in Jerusalem when he was crucified. And I'm sure a lot of them were heartbroken when they discovered what happened to him. But part of their anger, as you can see in verse 19, was because they felt like he was using this parable to speak against them. Now, Nathan did this with David one time, and it brought David to a place of repentance. And if someone is speaking directly to you, but indirectly using a story to talk about you, if you don't have the right character, you'll be offended. You'll become offended. And if, if, if people are doing that, you have to have the kind of character that doesn't allow you or won't permit you to become super angry. There are plenty of people get mad and upset if they think folks are talking about them. If you hear that somebody's been gossiping about you in another room or in another place, why get angry about what other folks are saying? Their words can't hurt you. One, one time in, um, in in high school, I kind of got into it with some people. And, you know, one of the things my parents told me, they said, you know, why in the world would you get into it with somebody? Because somebody called me a name. Because if, if they call me a name, does that make me what they call me? I said, no. She said, well, why in the world would you be getting into it with somebody over the fact that they, they, they called me a name? I said, because I just don't think they should have, should have said that. Now, our response isn't always appropriate to what people are saying, but you understand there are certain things that will raise our wrath and our anger. We don't like people talking about us. We don't like people talking about our Parents, we certainly don't like people talking about our kids. You don't like people being disrespectful to you in front of other people. And when they do, that naturally will cause that flesh to rise up. But Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. He was just letting these people know they're the ones that are going to go after him and do everything they can to harm him. So verse 20 tells us they, they watched him and they had some spies that should pretend to be righteous. Now this, this little sentence, which should feign themselves, pretend, in, in the Greek, this is where we get our word hypocrite from. Because a, a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be someone that they're not, something that they're not. It's a matter of role play. 
and a hypocrite according to scripture definitely is kind of like the Pharisees. You do what they say, but not what they do. And the spies were coming in undercover as secret agents. They had a private agenda, and that's a dangerous thing when someone is trying to get close to you and they have a private agenda and you can't discern what that agenda is immediately. The person who is deceptive, the individual who has an ulterior motive that isn't good, it's hurtful when you realize that person has gotten this close to you and they've been looking for ways to stick a dagger in your side or to harm This is what happened here with, with these spies. And the people that can hurt us the most typically are the ones that are closest to us. Those are the ones whose wounds hurt the most. However, a stranger is still a problem because he can still, she can still cause problems. You, you get somebody working for you in a company, and they have access to all kinds of sensitive material, they can cause all kinds of problems. You, you remember, under all these different administrations that we have, you remember in the preceding administration, they couldn't figure out why all these leaks and stuff were coming out. Well, you had a whole lot of people that were still loyal to the opposition, and they couldn't wait to tell the reporters and other people what was going on. You understand? But but even under this administration, you still had individuals who were loyal to the previous administration, and they can't wait to tell about different things that are going on. And so a, a spy is someone who's paying attention, who very often is being very secretive about what they see and what they hear. And the only way they're going to continue to exist in the middle of people that they're different from, they've got to act like they're they're one of them. Now, now this is a this is an interesting thing to me because it says they they pretended as if they were righteous people. Now, I, I've been around folks who were not Christian, who then pretended to be Christian just because it was a good thing to do because you were around them. And, and I've, I've been around people who were not Democrats, but because they weren't strong enough to hold their own opinions and values publicly, they just kind of just, you know, change colors and become kind of like that, and vice versa. I, I've seen that with other, other people, too. Well, a, a just person is a righteous person, should be an honest and an honorable person, but we don't want to pretend to be that way. It should be natural. Well, they were listening to what he had to say, because their objective was to turn him over to, to the governor. And remember, he, he wasn't doing any bad stuff by way of deeds. He was healing the sick, casting out devils, teaching the gospel, ministering about the kingdom of God. But some of what he was saying was out of step with conventional thinking. He certainly had beliefs about the end time or the time of the end that was different from regular Jews. And he did not say the things that should have been said about the temple during his day. So that came up during his trial. They said this man said he's going to destroy the temple. Well, these are the kinds of words they were listening for because they wanted to try to use these words against him. And so in verse 31, this is when 
in the middle of that crowd, they asked the question, and, and, and notice that they're being just and holy, and they're acting like they're very reverential towards him. They said, we know that you teach rightly, say things rightly. And rightly means to, to say things directly, to say things straight, and to help people form the right ways of thinking. So in English, here's what we, we say. We talk about orthodoxy. But in the Greek, the word here for rightly is orthos. So it says, we know that you teach properly and you teach correctly. And you're not afraid of anybody's person, anybody's face. Some people are intimidated by the countenance of, of certain people. That's what the Lord told Jeremiah. He said, don't be afraid of what people look like when you're prophesying. You open up your mouth and you say what I've told you. Now, I've told people on, a, on a several occasions, it would be very interesting if, if while I'm teaching, if somebody would put a couple of cameras behind me that showed the congregations when I'm teaching. Because you, you'd be surprised at the kind of faces that I get sometimes, depending on what I'm, I'm teaching on. You know, so sometimes I could be teaching on something that then there'll be somebody... You can see maybe they're real obstinate about what I'm saying. They don't like what I'm saying. They're even that angry. Kind of like that. Then, then sometimes I, I, I'll get some people who just be just happy, smiling and grinning. It's kind of like, oh, go ahead, Pastor, give it to them. Don't give it to me. Give it to them. Give it to them. And, and then, and then of course, you, you get the occasional one who their face is like this. <laughs> You know, because they, they've had a long day, and they're trying to get away and, and, and hear all of this is going on. And, of course, in the middle of all that, sometimes you've got people in the middle of, of conversations. But, you know, you, you cannot be intimidated by people's faces. If you've ever given a speech in front of a group of people, you had to, whether it was a motivational deal or whatever it was, you know, from start to finish, you've got to complete the task no matter what people are looking at. You have to do it. There's, there's no doubt about it at all. But we do want to be like Jesus and teach correctly. And the only way you can teach correctly is you have to know what the truth is. If I ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You should have an answer. If I ask you, can I follow you and your lifestyle and get to heaven? You should be able to say yes. Because there are plenty of people that will say, well, I'm not the best example and I'm not perfect. Well, that who is? But I still should be able to get to heaven following you. And if I can't get to heaven following you, then your lifestyle is not what it should be because we teach more by what we do than just by what we say. If you're faithful to attend to the house of God, people are going to know it. If you're faithful to read the book and study the word of God, people around you who know you are going to know it. And you're teaching people by what you do. I don't know if it was this past Sunday or, or last week. I was talking about the, the many times I've had parents you know, they, they uh, boast and they, they brag. Maybe they've had two or three kids came from toddler stage all the way up into college and then they say, you know all the games that our kids have had. I've never missed one in every wrestling match. I had to drive four hours in every wrestling match. Then I say, or I ask, how many church services have you been? 
How many of those have been? Of course, now I get all sheepish. Why edit? Like things like that. And the reason I ask that question, not because there's anything wrong with being supportive and being in the bleachers, any good parents are going to want to do that. But what you indirectly teach young people sometimes is, is that Sundays are for the Lord, except when we got a golf tournament. I'll be out there on that golf course. And, and, if, and if you're not careful, then they'll begin to associate the Lord's Day with all of these other things, and they'll say, well, you know, if we go to church, that's fine. If we don't go to church, it really doesn't matter, because after all, Christianity is about what's going on in my heart and me reading my Bible. It's not about where I need to be. Well, obviously, location is important, because if it wasn't important, you, you wouldn't need to be at the game or on the boat. Okay, So we, what we teach then has to be correct. And Jesus' custom, as I know it's all of ours in here, our custom is to be with the Lord's people in worship. So he's not intimidated by people. He teaches the way of God truly. He doesn't allow the, the divers' winds and doctrines of the day to control him. And he certainly doesn't lick his finger, put it up in the wind to determine what's right and what's wrong. Because there are politicians like that, some preachers like that. If the mass of the people are opposed to it, then they're opposed. But if everybody else is for it, then they're for it. But are you, are you strong enough to be bold and audacious in your faith, even when other people are standing against you and not teaching the way of God? We don't want to handle the word of God to see want to manifest God's word truly and purely. So they lavished praise on Jesus at pretenders and then they asked this question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or no? Now, here's basically what they're saying. Is it scripture to pay taxes? That's what they're asking. And the reason they used Caesar, of course, was Tiberius Caesar wasn't exactly a popular man. Roman emperors certainly weren't known for being holy. They were wicked. They were pagan. They would kill at will, kill randomly, kill with purpose. Didn't matter if somebody was accidentally taken out. They had as many women as they wanted, had homes all over the empire. In Jesus' time, let's not forget, the Roman Empire stretched from Britain going on over towards India. We're talking about big, big place. Lots of places moving on down into parts of, of, of Africa. So Caesar reigned over a very large area. And the way he was able to do that is he allowed the people in the different regions to worship their own gods. But he put his legions and soldiers in various regions to keep insurrections and rebellions from occurring. And when they did occur, he responded with brutality. We do not know of any other group of people in ancient history that practiced the kinds of capital punishment that the Romans did. I mean, they, they, they were a genius at this. They knew how to provoke fear and, and cause people to, to, to want to walk in line. So they're asking this question to Jesus about whether or not this is scriptural to give to Caesar or not. 
And, and the reason this question is important, if he says we should give to Caesar, then they're going to say, well, these people in Israel aren't going to respect you. You're trying to give money to a pagan man like Caesar. In other words, you want to give money to a man as unholy as that. And, and if, if he says no, then they can go to the Romans and say, we think we got the traitor here because he's trying to withhold money from, from the throne. So it's a, it, it's a very delicate question. It's one that, that none of us would want to have to deal with. Nevertheless, Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said, why are you tempting me? The same kind of phrase or the same word that goes back to Luke chapter 4 when he's talking to the devil, and he said, you are not to tempt the Lord your God. That's what this is, temptation. See if Jesus will yield to their cunningness. Well, I like his answer. He said, show me a penny. That's not a lot of money, but it was a significant piece of change for poor people who didn't have it. And when Jesus said that, he didn't say that you just bring it to me out of the treasury. So I don't know who who's the one that gave the gave the penny and brought it brought it forth. But but I do know this the two things he's interested in. Number one, the image, and number two, the writing on Why the image? Because the image is the icon. The icon is the representation of the person who has the authority to have the money minted. And at this time, the Roman Empire allowed their coins to be minted in different territories. And once you put that stamp on there, then people knew who it was that was ruling and reigning at that time. It's not to say that there weren't coins from previous administrations that might have still been in circulation. But icon is a representation. You go to the Catholic Church, you go into a Greek Orthodox Church, they'll have icons on the wall. You say icons of what? Mary? Peter? Paul? One time when I was in France, I went to a big church. And it, it had I mean, this lovely facility. I couldn't wait to get in there just to see some of the artwork and everything. But up across the top, they had the 12 apostles and a whole lot of other uh, disciples, and it was a big sculpture, and it was beautiful. And I'm watching people as they're walking uh, along this big, huge courtyard, if they're going inside, because, I mean, the entrance to the place might have stretched from inside here to across the road, and as people are going in, you got people stopping and you collecting because of those icons. When you, when you have an image that you believe is significantly powerful, then you have to acknowledge it somehow or another. And with some of these Caesars, what you can't see from the text is that throughout the empire, there were people who would have to burn incense for the emperor. And later, after Jesus was crucified and then called away to glory, many Christians died because they refused to burn incense to Caesar, to the emperor. Okay, well, show me a penny and whose image and superscription has it. And so the writing on there basically said Pontifex Maximus, which is the greatest authority. That's usually what it had. Now, if you look at your dollar bill, you've got stuff on your dollar bill or your quarter 
that maybe never paid attention. Time you look at the back of your dollar bill, got that big eye, the sonic thing. Yeah, and, and, and then you look at your quarters, of course, then you've got your images and pictures of your presidents and stuff. And of course, you come to church, you see George Washington all the time. <laughs> yeah, he, he just he makes a lot of appearances in the church and in the offering basket. But then when you start looking for other characters, Ben Franklin, people like that, they just they kind of disappear sometimes. But but here you have it, you, you've got these images, but for us in America, these pictures of the dead presidents are not for us to worship. We don't even revere them. But we do have to acknowledge that they would not be on the coin if they were not a person of significance. That's what this is. So the Lord asked the question, they answered, they said, Caesar's image, and writing his own. So he said, render therefore to Caesar the things which be Caesar, and unto God the things which be God. Should I pay taxes? Is your answer. You give to God what belongs to him, you give to Caesar what belongs to him. Now, now there are people in America today who will say, I don't acknowledge the government. I don't think the government has a right to tax me. And I refuse to pay taxes. I'm going to withhold it, do whatever I can. You'll probably be like so many of the Hollywood actors and end up in jail. And people will come visit you there. Because <laughs> Romans tells us that the government is a representation of the people. And that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. And so the government has the right to enforce the law. We're a democracy. This was a dictatorship. We're fortunate that we get a chance to vote. But there are hundreds of nations. And, and, and people groups in society, they have no say so at all. They have the same ruler from birth to death. A good friend of mine passed away in England last December. He was 90. Now, this man was a Greek professor at Oxford. And do you know that from the time he came into this world until the time he left, the only person that ever sat on the throne was Elizabeth. He never knew anything else. Now, I always say, as much as we complain about the presidents we have, you've got eight years to mess it all up. You can do a lot of damage. But, but after eight years, we're saying goodbye, and we don't have to see you again. Yeah. So that's a, that's, that's a thing for me that I think is, is interesting. But when we think about rendering unto Caesar the things that be under Caesar. If you don't want to pay taxes, here's what you probably should do. You don't want to pay taxes. Don't have a job. That's probably the first thing. Don't have a job. The, the second thing, just be unemployed the whole way. But the second thing you could do would be get a job where you only receive tips. Be the waitress. Work as a caddy at a golf club. Just, just get tips. But if, if you want pick up the phone when somebody breaks in your house and you want the police to respond? You're probably going to have to pay taxes. If, if you want to be able to ride down the roads and they're not, they're not like the ones we traveled in Mexico, where the potholes are big enough that when you're driving a car, it just disappears. 
then you're probably going to have to pay tax. If, if, if one day you want to reach an older age where you actually can receive SSN or Social Security, you're probably going to have to pay some tax. So when, so when people complain and say, well, I just, I just think we're, we're paying too much. Who doesn't believe that? Didn't that happen on the side? He died and his son took over and his, the old men came to his son and said, look, your, your, your dad had a whole lot of wives and women <laughs> and uh, palaces and horses and, and all these homes. I mean, it costs a whole lot of money to pay for all these people. And so they said, why don't you cut back on some of that and, and lighten the load on the people as far as the tax thing? So that's what the old wise men told, told him. Obviously, Solomon didn't listen. But Rehoboam, he didn't listen to them. He went to the young men who were dumber than he was. And, and they said to him, oh, no, it's party time now. You need to, you need to tighten up on this thing. And you need to enforce some, impose some greater taxes on them. And so he disrespected them all. He said, I want everybody to know that my little finger is going to be greater than my, thicker than my daddy's loins on So he insulted all. The whole thing divided. There's not a person in here that likes what happens with, with our taxes. I don't. I don't like our taxes. I don't like what insurance costs every month. I'm not, I'm not uh, a fan of what our taxes are used for, paying for abortions around the world. I don't like any of that. I don't have a whole lot of choice when it comes to that. i got to render to Caesar what's his. But, but at the same time, I've got a counterbalance and a counterweight that's even greater. I've got to render to God what belongs to him. And, and as much as I'm disappointed with what goes on in the natural, I know that by fulfilling my obligations on the spiritual side, that's what's really going to bless me in the end. So from, from the law, by law, I mean Genesis through, through, uh, through Deuteronomy, a dime out of every dollar, a dollar out of every ten, I know goes to the king. However, I don't live under the law anymore. The Bible says, according to Hebrews, I have a better covenant, better testament, better high priest, better blood, better sacrifices. So my wife and I get better than what's given or imposed under the law. And that's how every, every Christian should do it. So render to him what belongs to him. So what belongs to him? It all belongs to him. The only thing he has said is, Remember to give 10% and all of the Before we became Christians, you, you do realize we spent more money in sin than we did on things related to related to the Lord. Okay, so people then ask the question, well, well, who should I give to? Who should I not give to? Can I give to the cancer society? Can I give to the local fire station that's needing help and all of that? Give to anybody that's helping people. What's wrong with that? You say, well, I don't like the people that are in charge. What difference does it matter if you, you like the people that are in charge? Where are you going to find a perfect place on this planet with people in charge? I think all of us in here have cell phones. And the ones of you who don't, one day you're going to have a cell phone. But the people who 
who turn who make it possible for you to turn your cell phone on and off, you know these folks aren't Christian. And a lot of these people support things that are terrible. Absolutely wicked. Yeah, better believe it. And and at the, at the state level, for a lot of things that take place here in Nebraska and other places, I've got people that a lot of people that we pastor that are teachers and professors and all of that. And the stories I hear from about what goes on in the teachers union and money that goes towards that, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. But you know what? You're still going to have to pay taxes for your school and your community. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not going away. It's going, it's going to be that way. And, and you're going to have to pay county taxes, whether you like the county commissioner or anybody else. It, it, it's just not going to change. And from Scripture, it's always been that way. When you get a nucleus of people together, needs tend to generate. When those needs generate, then people expected the tribal chieftain to try to help meet the needs of all of these people. So what did he do? He went to the different heads of the clans and said, look, there's got to be something we can do. Can you give X amount of dollars towards this? So in the, in the legal, political, civic sense, that's what has happened with the text. As long as you're holding money in your hand, you're acknowledging that we're in a system where taxes are going to be paid. He said, render unto Caesar the things which be Caesar, and unto God the things which be God's. Well, then maybe there's not so much a mixture, but we do know that God is higher than Caesar in our life. In our life. <clears throat> and, and here's where the dividing line comes. The things that belong to Caesar, the things that belong to God. Let me tell you what doesn't belong to Caesar. What doesn't belong to the President of the United States, what doesn't belong to our governor, what doesn't belong to our mayors or any local magistrate, my worship doesn't belong to them. So they're not going to tell me who I can worship and when I can worship. It's just it's not going to happen. And in, in, that, in, in that sense, we know that in the West, but what about those folks that live in Middle Eastern countries and in some Buddhist countries where Christianity is banned and forbidden, and if they find out you're worshiping, they'll take your life. You're a believer and you belong to God and your heart has been redeemed by the king, you still have to give to God what belongs to you. Even if it means it'll cost you your life. Be faithful. Be faithful. So we work in a system in this world where we work side by side with unbelievers. Sometimes you work for unbelievers, as Joseph did and Daniel did. But whatsoever we do, we do in the name of the Lord. Believing that if we're faithful stewards over what God has given us and where he has placed us, we can expect his favor to continue to operate in our lives. Amen? Amen. Yeah, don't, don't ever change that. Don't, don't think because you're side by side with someone that's an unbeliever that you can't still be a Christian. This world is filled with unbelief. We have to be a witness, and, and God wants us to be strong in our faith. Look at verse 26 here. They could not take hold of his words before the people. They marveled at his answer, and they held their peace. Seemed like that happened a lot with Jesus. Yeah, what, what, what exactly do you say? 
I mean, his answer was clear. It was articulate. <clears throat> Give to God what belongs to him. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. And don't mix the two. When, when I come into church, now this is where some ministers and pastors will, might disagree with me. <clears throat> but when I come in, into a church, I'm not in a church to magnify any of this. And I'm not trying to, to, to magnify anything other than the kingdom of God. I'm a Marine, patriotic. I'm not here trying to magnify American culture. I'm here trying to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And it doesn't matter where you come from or where you've been. We just know when we stand before the Lord, he is no respecter of person. No respecter of person. You go back in our early history. And, and, and you'll find a, a whole lot of, a lot more uh, patriotic flavor in some of the services and the things that, that, that they were doing. But then, of course, at, at that time, we had pretty much a group of people that all of them looked alike. And all of them just about came from the same nine or ten different different countries. But, but in the kingdom of God, if, if I'm in Africa or if I'm in Sweden or if I'm down in Uruguay, or in Papua New Guinea, when I gather with a bunch of people, I'm not disrespectful of their country or their culture. I'm there to let them know that in the kingdom of God, Jesus is blending together one big culture. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the law was nailed to the cross with him. When he died and came up out of the grave, he didn't come up out of the grave as a Jewish man telling people to keep going to the Jewish people. He said, take this gospel into all the world. You can't preach the gospel of Judaism. Otherwise, there'd been no need for the cross. We preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, which Paul says is the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles. So how do you bring so many people together if we're going to try to turn them all in one people? One ethnicity? Well, let me just finish up this with you because I don't know, is it, is it just me? Is it a little warm? It feels like a meat All right. So let, let's suppose we all went to a nearby cemetery. And you that have been born and raised in this region, so we'll take like the Kruger ladies here. So let's suppose we were over near Gilead and we went out to one of the 120 cemeteries there in town. And, and we started walking by, and I said, do you know who this is? And then they said, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so used to be the grocery here. This one here used to haul rubbish out of town. This one here used to be great because this one here had 22 kids. <laughs> Just go through that whole thing. And and then I started asking, okay, so what, what's their background? Okay, this one was of English background. This one was of Danish background. This one was of German background. You keep going through the whole thing. Do, do you realize all of those people from different backgrounds, they likely had different languages at this point? Yeah. And, and, and by the time you get through the cemetery, you realize that this place really was diverse. Even though a whole lot of people in America will tell you that it isn't. Diverse, very diverse. But how could so many people of diverse cultures come together 
and work and live and get along 140 years ago, 120 years ago, 80 years ago, 60 years ago. I can tell you exactly how they did it. It's right here. It's right here. The, the average town of 700 people or 1,000 people have, have greater moral standards today than some large cities had 50 years ago because of this book right we render to Caesar what Caesar, we render to the Lord what belongs to him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to look into your word. And I'm so grateful that the scriptures are true. Lord, help each of us to be diligent. Render to Caesar what belongs to him, but more importantly, give to you what belongs to you. Prosper us, guide us, keep us healthy, keep us all in our right mind. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen.